We're going to uh, launch this year back into the story of a guy named Samuel in his book called First Samuel. So if you have your Bibles with us, uh, with you, uh, turn to First Samuel chapter 7. That's where I'm going right now. Um, we're going to talk about repentance today. Uh, some, every week when I get the, ready to preach, uh, I usually don't sleep the night before super well, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, wrestling with the things that I'm going to talk to you about in my own life and in my preparation to say what I say. Uh, some weekends are harder than others. I've, I've had just a bear of a 48 hours uh, for all kinds of reasons I'm not going to go into. Don't cry for me, Argentina. But... Uh, uh, I think God wants, when, when that happens in my life personally, as I'm getting ready to preach to you guys, I think the message that we're going to hear from God's word is they're always special and important and, and, and I trust from him through me, uh, but we need to hear this one today. Uh, there's been all kinds of forces uh, afoot that uh, you know, have made it harder for me to prepare for this one. And, and so as, as repentance is one of the central messages of our books, front to back, Old Testament, New Testament. The story of God with man is man messed up, sin has separated us from him, and we need to repent and return to God. It's the story of all the people in our Bibles. It's our story today. It's what our adversary, the devil, doesn't want us to do. He would rather us stay blind, dark, dead to God, and not move forward in life with him. I pray that you're here today, not just simply out of habit or under duress, I pray you're here today because you believe there is a God, that he has things for you, a life for you, that he hopes for you, and that you're serious about following him in it in every possible way, not just the stuff that you like to show people, but in these things too. Are you with me? And so today's a message about these things, the stuff that isn't already surrendered to him, the stuff that needs to be. All right, let's talk. Let's do some quick recap on Samuel. Samuel is uh, introduced in the first chapter. Actually, his parents are. Their names are Hannah and Elkanah. Hannah has been without child her whole life. She has always wanted to bear a son for her husband. And uh, she prays to God in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel and says, If you give me a son, I will give him to you. And uh, so God does, blesses her with her child, Samuel. And then sons and daughters after that, we come to understand. But her first is Samuel, and in response to her promise to God, she takes Samuel, after he's been weaned, to the tabernacle in this place called Shiloh. In the, uh, it's over here, Mediterranean Sea, uh, River Jordan, Dead Sea, Galilee. It's right over here. And, uh, and, and she takes him to the tabernacle in Shiloh and offers him to the leaders there, a guy named Eli and his sons and others like him. And he's the youngest intern on record. He is a four-year-old who has been given to the ministry of God in the tabernacle of Israel. Um, uh, the story moves forward to, to tell us about uh, Eli and his, the, these sons of his who are the current priests in charge of worship in this region of Israel. Uh, Eli's the high priest. His sons work for him. Um, and the, the best we can say about these guys is that they're terrible. They're lousy at their jobs. Eli is uh, with one hand scolding his sons and with the other hand participating in their sins with them. His sons uh, could be like henchmen for the Sopranos. That's an old show, but like, like they're bad. Like there's bad and then there's Hophni and Phineas bad. They're, they're like, they're just doing stuff that, uh, it starts out innocent enough as they you know, feed themselves from the sacrifices that they're, they're not supposed to take certain portions of the meat, but they, they take them for themselves. And that gives way, uh, just like so many uh, you know, uh, 
entry-level sins. It gives way to them just going bonkers. And they, they just commit all kinds of atrocities as like the pastors of Israel. Right? These guys are meant to be the examples, and they are completely off the rails. So God says we're done with Eli and his sons. We're getting rid of them. He sends an unnamed prophet in chapter 2, and this prophet prophesies to Eli, we're finished. Thus so, saith the Lord. And then he uses actually Samuel himself in chapter 3, a younger, probably high school age, maybe middle school aged uh, you know, Samuel is visited by God and told, hey, go tell your boss <laughs> I'm going to be finished with him. Uh, and and as, uh, Eli uh, confers with uh, Samuel and, and he says, you got to give it to me straight. What's the word on the street? And Samuel says, God is going to judge you. And your sons. And so that's the first three chapters. Samuel born, Samuel given to the temple, Eli and the sons introduced, Eli and the sons judged, and then in chapter four, it all unfolds, right? Because here comes this nation up from Egypt on the coast of the Mediterranean, which is over here. The Philistines enter the story of Scripture. It's the first time we hear about them. Uh, they're going to be you know, uh, big players as we move forward from here. Uh, but this is the first time on record that the Philistines square off against the Israelites. And so uh, Israel goes to war with the Philistines. And they're thinking, like, we got this. Uh, every time we went to war in the book of Joshua, in the conquest of our land, God was with us, and uh, we were able to win all of those battles and take control of the land that had been promised to our father Abraham. But here in this story, they get waxed. I mean, beat down. It, uh, people die. Thousands of men lose their lives. They retreat and lick their wounds, and the elders of Israel say, what was that? How'd we lose? And they talk. And they think to themselves, oh, how silly of us. We forgot our secret weapon, the Ark of the Covenant of God. There was this box uh, that basically carried the relics of the Jewish faith of the time. And the box had always preceded Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness, as they crossed into the promised land. It was a part of their, their battle cry, their battle inspiration as they went to war. The presence of God was seen to be in the box itself, and he would go before them and give them victory in battle. They forgot the box. How can we forget the box? So they send to Shiloh, and the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, deliver the box to the battlefield. And Israel, it's out this big whoop because now we're going to win. Did they? Someone said no? You got a 50-50. Who's with me on no? Yeah, some of you read. Yeah, they got waxed in the first fight. They got completely annihilated in the second one. Over 30,000 men of Israel lost their lives that day. On top of that, the box was taken by the Philistines as a spoil of war. A messenger heads back to Shiloh. Eli uh, is sitting on his judge's seat there by the city gates, and uh, he hears the clamor as the reports of war uh, arrive in his town. He's unable to see, and so he can't look to see you know, this messenger, and finally he just yells, someone tell me what's going on. And the messenger comes to him and says, Eli, I got some bad news, fourfold. We lost, that's the first thing. We lost big. That's the second thing. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. But the worst of it is that the box has been taken by the Philistines. The Bible tells us that uh, Eli, a big heavy guy at the time, we talked about how glory and weight 
are uh, synonymous in the story of Eli. But uh, this, this man, this priest who had given himself the glory and taken for himself the glory that God was due, uh, probably, scholars think, has like a, a, an atrial uh, defibrillation. I don't know. I just made that up. I hope that's true. Uh, but like a heart attack, falls off this bench, breaks his neck, and he's done. Judgment finished. Hophni and Phineas dead in battle. Eli dead on the bench or at the bottom of the bench. And thus begins the eventual reign or leadership of Samuel as priest and prophet and judge of Israel. Now, we don't hear about Samuel in the chapters that follow. In 5 and 6, I'm going to summarize those real quick. You probably said, wait, that's only chapter 4. We're in chapter 7. What happens in between? Here's the deal. If you ever get bored of me preaching, just read your Bibles. You're totally allowed, okay? If you want to know more details, it's right there. Uh, you know, uh, just download the Bible from, from an app and, and, and read it if you don't trust me. But here, let me summarize. Uh, the, the chapters 5 and 6 tell the story of the box in Philistine hands. The Ark of the Covenant is taken uh, by its captors, the Philistines, into a temple, a shrine that had been dedicated to their gods, these false gods that they worshipped. One of my favorite stories in the whole book of 1 Samuel is the story of when they put the box in this shrine, the next morning they go in, and one of their chief gods, this god called Dagon, his statue, which they would worship at, had been pushed over. Its head had been lopped off. It's in your Bibles. Read it. His head has been taken off. His hands have been removed, showing that he is completely powerless against the God of the box, the God of Israel, and he is laying in a worship form, in a prostrate form, before the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines walk into this. Here's what was happening. God, who had used the Philistines as agents of his judgment against Israel, a fallen and rebellious Israel was now sending the message to these Philistines, hey, we're not pals. I'm not on your side. I'm the one true God. You need to worship me and not these, you know, yokes, yokels around me. And, and so Dagon among them, he, he shows his preeminence. Uh, he, he also unleashes his judgment against the Philistines in, in, in more insidious ways. He uh, allows tumors to grow on the bodies of those in the towns where his box is being held. Uh, so the box starts getting moved around Philistine territory. Uh, and everybody's like, no, we don't want the box. Like the last people in the last town, it was called Ekron, were like, keep your box, we don't want that box. And so finally the uh, Philistine elders say, we gotta get rid of this thing, but I'm not gonna touch it. Are you gonna touch it? I'm not touching it. And so they said, well, get, get a couple guys to load it up on their version of a pickup, uh, a cart that was driven by two milk cows, and let's just set the milk cows to walking, and if the milk cows head back to Israel, like miles over the terrain, head back to Israel, we'll know that the God of this box was behind all that has happened, and we'll know better next time not to mess with it. It's in your books, read it. And so the milk cows take the road to Israel, and finally... The box, the very presence or essence of God on earth for the Jewish faith is returned to its homeland. That's where we pick up the story that we have today. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, that the men of this town called Kiriath-Jerim, uh, it was uh, kind of on that road that the milk cows were walking, um, they came and they took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of a guy named Abinadab uh, on the hill. We'll get back to that in a second. Uh, we don't know a ton about Abinadab other than uh, his house was chosen as the, the home now of uh, the, the ark of the covenant of God. 
I don't know why I didn't go back to Shiloh. Perhaps we do know this. The Philistines, who had won these two incredible battles, you know, months before, had certainly um, occupied the territory that Israel had held. They were in charge now. And so maybe Shiloh had fallen to them in a battle that isn't mentioned, perhaps. Uh, But uh, this is the place where the people of God say, we're going to keep the ark of God. It's Abinadab's house. He's got it. Now, the son of Abinadab, a guy named Eleazar, which is kind of informative for us, uh, Eleazar was the name of a guy named Aaron's son. Uh, Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was the first of the priests in the, uh, the story of Israel once the exodus uh, had happened. And many other priests were named for this son of Aaron, Eleazar. This guy, Abinadab's son, Eleazar, makes us believe that Abinadab and Eleazar were priests. And so it was okay for them to house the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in their home. Eleazar was consecrated uh, and was given charge of the ark of the Lord. Verse 2 says this, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed. 20, 20 years passes. That is a long time. That's a little, well, probably more than a little, less than half of my life now, but uh, it's uh, a long time. Somebody, I'm looking at some of you. You're young. You weren't around 20 years ago. You were not here, right? And uh, so uh, this is a long time in life. And, and, and nothing's mentioned of these 20 years. Box back, 20 years happens. What happened in those 20 years? Well, we can assume some things that happened by what is told to us next. We can assume that Israel, having been occupied by these Philistines, had started what I will call a spiritual drift from the God that they were meant to serve and worship. That's why I find it very interesting that the writer of this account talks about Abinadab's house being up on the hill. Uh, Certainly, uh, places of worship in this time in history were in higher spots, whether it was the false gods or the one true God, you'd worship up on the mountain or up on the hill. Uh, But uh, it also created this valley or this lower place where the rest of life took place. I know nobody in here does this. Nobody in here uh, just forgets about God's existence for the entire week until they end up here on Sunday for an hour and then goes back to living like he doesn't exist for the rest. I know nobody here does that. That there's no breaks in our allegiance to and worship of the one true God. But here in the story of Israel, God was up on the hill and Israel was down here in the valley doing all kinds of stuff that wasn't about him. 20 years passes and because of their choices, Israel, it's told, laments after God. What does it mean to lament after someone? It means to cry out to him, to beg him for mercy, uh, to, to ad- admit your wrongs. It's what happened in the story of the Exodus when uh, slaves, the, the, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were living in, in Egypt and they uh, had been just put upon with this incredible workload and they were suffering and they cried out to this God that they didn't really know. They just said, please deliver us and God sends Moses and off we go. But that's what it means to lament to God. To get to a point where like, I've had it. This is it. Please, God, do something. In the midst of 
what we don't have in our record, these 20 years, we do have an indication that Israel had left their God. Spiritual drift had occurred. Distance uh, had happened, even though God is constantly present with us, like here right now. Everybody gets that God is here right now, watching me preach. I pray by his spirit, preaching through me to us, right? He's here right now. He's at your house. I love it when people come and say, well, you can't do that at church, as if you can do sin other places. You can't. God is ever present. He never leaves or forsakes us. Does everybody get that? We're the ones who leave and forsake on the regular. He's ever present and we don't see him. This is happening more and more in my life. Has anybody seen my phone? Has anybody done this? I can't find my phone anywhere. I've looked everywhere it should be. Honey, your phone is in your right hand. Oh, there's my phone. Where was that? I don't even know. This is our spiritual condition. Where's God? What's he doing in life? It it feels like he's not even here, and he's right here. He's not the problem. Guess who is? It's us. Israel is in a spiritual drift. Though they fail to see God, God sees them. He's up on the hill. They've left him there, but he sees, cares, and is ready to receive them if they'll repent. The drift certainly started under the leadership of Eli and his sons. It continued uh, despite the nation's utter defeat by the Philistines. You'd think they'd get the message. Hey, when we lost that fight, maybe we should have kind of repented then. No. Oh, woe is me. We're occupied. I guess we'll worship their gods. (laughs) But now, 20 years later, they've had enough. Uh, I, I love this book. It's 30 Two years old now. Gosh, I'm old. Anyway, uh, but when I read it back in college, uh, it was uh, a, a big seller in the Christian world. It was called Frog in the Kettle. It was written by a guy named George Barna, who later after that became famous for his statistics and, and the stories he would tell about the church in the age that we live in. But in this, one of his first books, he writes about this uh, analogy from science that amphibians, uh, if you drop a frog in a boiling pot of water, which first of all, don't. Uh, please, that's not good. But, but the, uh, the science is, is that if you drop an amphibian in a boiling pot of water, they'll sense immediately that water's too hot and jump out and they'll save themselves, right? But if you put a frog in a kettle and then slowly, which again, don't check my work on this, okay? But if you put a frog in a kettle and you slowly bring that kettle to boil, the frog, because of its cold-blooded nature, will not leave the water, even once it's boiling, even once it's hot enough to kill him. Why? Because his body will match the temperature of the water as it continues to heat up until finally he gets in this stupor. He can't even function. He's just like, and it eventually leads to his demise. And Barna reasoned, that's the church in America in 1990. I would submit to you, that's the church or that's the nation of Israel. That's the people of God Always, since the garden and until he returns, our nature, our sin nature, is to go away from God, to ignore him in his presence, to, to deny him in his rule over our lives, and our wills will, t- will take us in the direction of the frog in the kettle. We'll get into these situations and the environments that we're living in and the world that we live in, and we'll just become like them until we have finally Listen, if you don't believe me, look at the stats. The same guy, Barna, did a survey 10 years ago, and between 10 years ago, 2000, 
13, thank you, I got there. Math was not big in Bible school. Anyway, uh, uh, but in 2013, uh, there were 10% more people in our population, overall populace, saying that they followed the God of the Bible, that they were Christian in the evangelical understanding of that. We have lost 10% of our chunk of the pie in the American populace in 10 years. Just so we're clear, that's an alarming number. If we go in that direction, you do the math, and another 20, 30, 40 years, not many of us left. In the same time, Barna found that it is a fourfold increase in the number of people in that pie uh, when asked, you know, who do you believe in, what do you trust in, who would say that they're atheistic now. That used to not be something that people would, you know, uh, glom onto, but now it's not just you know, this option, it's this identity for people. They're antagonistic against the idea of God. It's the world we live in. And in this world of darkness, it's so easy for us to, to forget the stories of, of what we're reading today, to forget the call of the entire of Scripture the, the, to repentance and to walking in the light as he is in the light, right? Everybody knows that darkness isn't a thing, right? It's just the absence of light. Darkness is not real. It's just the absence of something that is. And in a dark world, like the one that we're living in, that is pulling at the very moorings, the very fabric of the beliefs that we have been given in Scripture, it's, it's becoming commonplace in Christians, hope not in this church, but in churches around our country, to just, instead of shining the light into those dark situations, into those dark arguments and conversations, to just kind of try to adapt to the dimness. Has anybody been out at night and uh, uh, you forgot your flashlight and so you're just kind of standing there in your front yard so you can find your car, you know? Uh, and you're like, okay, I just gotta let my eyes, my pupils, whatever, they, they get smaller? No, bigger, they get bigger when it's dark, right? And, and I just gotta let my eyes adjust and then I'll eventually be able to see enough of what I need to see to be able to go where I need to go. Wouldn't it be better? to head back in the house and get that big old mag light, torch light, whatever you got, and just be certain right away and see every step that you take and know exactly where you're going. But the church, Christians of this day, they choose the dark instead. It's understandable they left God up on the hill. So let me ask my first question of us today. Of us this year, perhaps, if it's the first time I've seen you. Uh, am I living down in the valley and leaving God up on the hill? Ask that of yourself. And, and, and take, a, take a second, because a lot of times, if I'm asked that, of course, I'm a pastor. How dare you? Of course I'm living for Jesus. I'm paid to. Our, our initial reactions can be, well, yeah, and, 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 we, and we bring this into the, look at all the ways that I'm living for him. He's not up on the hill in my life. Well, let's talk about these. Why? Let's talk about these. No, let's talk about these. In what areas of your life have you left God up on the hill? As you um, duck into the cover of the darkness of the world that we live in. Know this, when we leave God on the hill, he becomes more difficult to hear. I'm gonna call you to repentance today, and here's why. 
If, if you continue in a direction away from God in whatever area of your life where that's existing, the further you go, the harder it is to get back. The harder it is to get Now, let me encourage you. God's a trailer. <laughs> He's ever-present, so there's never like this between us and him. It's just us leaving him. And, and the further we go, the, the farther we go into the sins of life, the, the more difficult it is. And, and that's why I'm so glad you're here. That's why I'm so glad you're watching online. If you're watching online, hi. It's because I'm praying, as I got ready to talk today, that God would speak through me to you in those ways or those worlds where you're far from him. And that you'll hear his voice and draw back. I, I live with a, a 90-year-old father-in-law. He's uh, just my favorite father-in-law that I've ever had. And uh, uh, No, he is. He's awesome. But he's 90 years old. He's got hearing aids. They don't always work. He's got a, like a remote control, and sometimes he messes it up. When he thinks he's turning them up, he's turning them down. And so uh, I've caught myself in conversations with people here at work where I'm yelling, like, and I just haven't like, adjusted for like, the real world because when I go home, I have to talk like this. Dad! Ah, do you want to play a board game? You want to hit me with a board? No. He'll, he'll get confused when I talk to him. He can't hear. He'll get confused when I, I'll be in the room with him, and I'll be talking to Eleanor in the other room, and we're talking normally. So, but he thinks, what? He thinks he's in the conversation. It's like, bro, I, I need to get, like, signs, not you, right? <laughs> but then... That, that's how it gets with us. The, 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 the darker life seems or, or, or life gets, the, the more we uh, you know, distance ourselves from God, the harder it is to hear. And the, harder, the, the more difficult it is to sense his presence. I, I had a bonfire at my house on Friday night um, uh, with a family uh, that's dear to us from our life group. And uh, uh, we're just hanging out. And um, uh, I was in charge of the fire to keep it going. Here, just a real quick tip. If you want to keep your bonfire going, Dura logs. They are the best at keeping a bonfire going. They're cheater logs. Anyway, uh, but I, had, I, I still had to kind of like throw the logs on there, keep the flames, flames bright so we could do the s'mores. And so I was in, does anyone remember Friday night? It was like 45 degrees out. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, and I'm just having a great time because I'm from Maine, and I love this time of year, and I'm sorry if you don't, but suck it up, buttercup. Uh, this is my time. And, and so I'm out there having a great time. And I'm not cold at all because I'm moving and grooving and I'm right by the fire. I'm super warm. It's not until I left the fire to put my dog inside. He started chasing raccoons in our yard. Uh, and so can't have that. So uh, I got like, you know, 100 yards from the fire. And I was like, oh, it's a little cold outside. I couldn't feel or sense the heat of what I had been close to before. I I've always likened that to what it is, to just go into this spiritual drift. We're not near the fire. We can't see as well, feel as well, hear as well the things that God has for us. This is where we find Israel in our story today. They're crying out, lamenting to God, help us, help us not be as we are. And so Samuel comes to the rescue, if you want to call it that. It's the first time we hear of Samuel uh, in, in his adult form. It's his first message. Uh, if, if you want to call these you know, Samuel's sermons, this is his first one. He comes to Israel in their occupied state, in their spiritual drift, and he teaches them how they can get right with God. Does anybody want to know how to get right with God? I, I think some of you probably do know, but uh, uh, there comes times in our lives where we're like, hey, enough. God, how 
Do I make things right with you? How do I live this life for you? That's what Samuel comes to teach. He gives them two turns. It's just two turns. It's a turn away from and a turn towards. He starts in verse 3 and he says this, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away or turn away from the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Uh, the Canaanites, the, the Philistines, uh, and others who were from the land, uh, worshipped these, these poles. They were the, uh, the, the emblems of a goddess named Ashtaroth. Um, they looked like telephone poles. Uh, they were phallic symbols, not to weird anybody out, but they, uh, were, she was the goddess of fertility. And so they would go up on these high places and they would worship these poles in hopes that their crops would be uh, you know, lush and that their children would be bred. Uh, uh, the foreign gods, we're going to find out later, they're going to be labeled as Baals or Baals. Uh, Baal is this big, you know, false god in the story of Israel in this period of its history. And, and they were prevalent, and there were many forms of Baals or foreign gods that the Israelites had chosen to worship. So Sam comes to them, and they're like, we're crying out to God. What do we do? And he says, well, you got to leave. you got to leave all of the things that you've worshipped ahead of your God. You've got to forsake them and choose God in their place. It's talking about repentance. Repentance is this word in our Bibles that means to turn away from. It's not just say sorry. Most of the times when we say sorry to God, it's a sorry, not sorry. Does anybody know the sorry, not sorry? The sorry, not sorry is I'm sorry right now. I'm sorry because I have to pay for whatever I've done. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the consequence. I'm sorry you know, that this is happening, but I'm really not going to change. It's a sorry, not sorry. God's not interested in our sorry, not sorry. God is interested in our repentance, our change. He wants us to... To take the path that we've been on and reverse it and head the opposite direction, away from what we were worshiping and towards him with our worship. For this to happen, a couple of things. Before we can leave, we've got to look. Look before you leave. This is the hard part. Seeing the things that need to change. Seeing the ways that we have refused God's dominion and worshiped other uh, idols, chiefly ourselves. We need to identify those things. If you ever want to know what I had for lunch, look in this region of my shirt at about 3 o'clock. You'll see the salsa and the sour cream from, you know, the fajitas or whatever I had. I'm just a messy eater. I'll confess. I'm not good at it. Uh, uh, I often go into my office, into the, the mirror that I have there, and I will see the evidence of my meal. And you've got to know that I've got like 10 shirts in my office that I can rotate on those days where things got a little out of hand. Are you with me? Uh, certainly, for us to be able to leave, it, it requires us first to be the ones who look, to run a check. Some of the, uh, listen, I started talking about repentance, and some of you knew immediately what God wanted you to focus on as a result of us talking about this issue today. You know exactly where you're wrong. You're the dirtbag in your relationship with so-and-so. You're the one who always says, it's just how I was raised as an excuse for you being whatever you are with whoever. Are you with me? Yeah, I, I don't have to like comb through the deep, you know, the deeps of your person. It's just, it's right there. It's on your person. It's on your shirt. We can see it. And you can too. It's got to admit it, own it, and choose by God's grace to leave it. The next part's a little bit more difficult. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that's often quoted. Uh, I don't know if we fully uh, 
uh, grasp, its, um, its uh, intended depth in our life. But it says that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Uh, we can go to other parts of the scripture that talk about how uh, we have been given to each other uh, in part to encourage, certainly, to love and, and heal and provide wherever we can possibly do that. But we are here to point out the ways that we as individuals are missing God's best in our lives. Uh, it's a loving confrontation. That loving part, some guy gets left out. Uh, but we are here to help each other see where we are worshiping something that isn't God and to turn from it and head back towards him. I've uh, been given a, a bride who is super capable in this department. I am not always ready to listen. I know I'm the only husband in here who has a problem with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's laughing too loud. Anyway, uh, but it's understandable. None of us likes to hear that we're doing something. Our, our first instinct is to deflect and say, well, here's your problem. But does everybody understand? Even when delivered poorly, often God uses other followers of him to help us see our foibles, our failures, so that we can pull out of those things and follow him in them. I had a good friend of mine who was in my wedding. Um, basically, we re reconnected after years of not hanging out with each other. Um, and I started kind of missing our appointments just uh, because I had other things I needed to do. He, he uh, at our next Zoom, he, he lives in Washington, at our next Zoom, he said, hey, can I, can I tell you, he was super gentle about it and loving, can I, can I, can I be honest with you? Uh, I think you have a hard time, uh, you know, making your yes a yes. You know what the first thing that came to my head is? We're done. <laughs> like literally, we're not friends anymore. How dare you? Do you know how many people God has given me uh, to shepherd and, and the number of times that I need to, you know, uh, say no to this so I can be a part of this? I went through all, I mean, I, I loaded up for bear. And I, I'll be honest with you, I stopped listening in the conversation. Because I'm like, we haven't talked for 20 years and you're going to tell me how I am? This is really easy. It's a click on a computer. Bye-bye. Now, I made it through the conversation, but he texted me earlier this week, and I just, I'll, I'll be honest, none of us have ever done this, but I intentionally did not answer my friend's text. I'm like, heck no. And it just, start, one of the reasons I've had a bad 48 hours is because God knows I'm going to preach on uh, confession and repentance, and he's like, hey, bozo. Can we work on this one before you yell at everybody else about this? I, I texted him, or, or actually phone called, uh, called him last night and just confessed. I've been, I've been mad and unrighteously mad. And uh, uh, we need to figure this out and, and we're going to talk uh, tomorrow and, and, and do that. Well, there. That was cathartic for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> But it's so important to have people in your life who can point out the things in your life that aren't yielded to our God. Can I, can I just, I'm just going to, I'll wrap it up here. I got one thing that I really want you to do this week, okay? Certainly, uh, all of it in confession and, and repentance, I want you to find those things that need to be yielded to God that aren't yielded to God and, and turn in his direction. Turn away from the things that you're worshiping that aren't him and towards him. That's, that's the message. Um, but you need to let yourself see it on the surface. You need to let other people point it out in the ways that you can't see. And then I'm going to ask everybody, sometime during this week, maybe do it today, 
take your phone, open up a, a file, or take your computer, open a file. If, you, if you're still using pencils and pens, you can grab a, a blank sheet of paper. Uh, but just pray. And here's, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Pray and say, God, thank you so much for everything, life, you know, all, all these things. Uh, could you please point out to me the ways in which I do not worship you? And then just wait and watch as your hand starts moving and things start pouring out. Because the best person to help us see the ways that we aren't worshiping God is God. And you slowing down long enough to hear him and have him speak to you. It's the way it's always been done between us and him. Let him shine his light on the dark spots of your life. Let him point you in his direction and away from the things that have kept you from him. Everybody do that this week. Just take a second, 10 minutes, be quiet and listen and let God point you to those things. Once those things are evident, once you've seen them, the next thing to do is to leave them. You gotta look and then you gotta leave. Forsake those things. Samuel says to Israel, leave the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths that you have worshipped. Turn back to the God you've forsaken. Turn back, it says in that verse 3, to the God that you've forsaken. Read it one more time with me, I'll let you go home. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, and then he gives some superlative descriptions of that return, with all of your heart. No half-hearted returns. If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart. It's this great Hebrew word, in huru, and it means aim. Make God your target in everything that you are and in everything that you do. Him first. There was this book written back at the turn of last century called In His Steps. It, from it, we got that phrase, what would Jesus do? It was on our bracelets in the 90s. Anybody remember those? Yeah, and so we were taught through that book to ask, what would Jesus do? I, I would ratchet it up even a little bit more. What does Jesus want? Like when you come to some situation in life, you want to ask, where is, where is my aim in this? Is my aim to honor God, to direct my entire heart in his direction? What does he want in this when I fight with my spouse? What does he want with this when I go to work tomorrow morning? How can I glorify him in all of my dealings in life. He's my aim, not my comfort, not my victories. God's glory, he's my chief aim. With all of your heart, direct your heart to the Lord and then serve him exclusively, only. There's no pie chart for your worship. There's no pie chart for your devotion. There's no like 93% God, but 7% me. It's just him. He alone gets the glory from your life, the, the acts of service from your life. Your, your dependence is on him. Your, your hope is for him to reign in you and in those around you in life. That's the mission of God in this world. He created us for him that we may honor him. Samuel says, hey man, love the Lord with all your heart. Direct your heart, aim it at him, serve him only. And guess what? He'll bless you. I know you're occupied 
uh, by the, the Philistines and their armies. Listen, he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And, and that's his sermon. Don't you wish I preached like that? <laughs> We'd be out of here in no time. Some of you are like, yeah, Mark, it's almost 12. Let's go. But he just says, hey, man, repent. Leave that stuff. Turn back to your God. And so in verse 4, it says what they did. So the people did it. You know what my prayer for us this year is? That we'd be like the people of Israel who put away the false gods, the Ostrovs, the Baals, and serve the Lord only. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to say about a church? Where do you go to church? Bay life. Oh, you're those people. You, you set aside all the other noise and mess and the darkness of this world, and you worship the one true God and him alone. You go to that church. Yeah, that's me. I'm a part of that movement. I'm making that the priority of my personal life. It's my hope for my church. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say it's my hope for this country. If you move forward in the story of Israel, as a country, God blesses them. They have three kings, Saul, David, and then a guy named Solomon. During the reign of Solomon, Israel was at its apex. Solomon uh, uh, decided that he would honor uh, his God with a temple that was his dad's idea to start, but, but Solomon got to finish it. And Solomon's about to dedicate the temple of God, and God and Solomon have one of those conversations I was talking to you about. And God speaks to Solomon, he says, hey, can I just talk to you about your country? Let me talk to you about my people. And he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, these words, he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence along my people. Let me just explain. When, when I allow bad things, the results of, of, of sin being in the world, the brokenness of the world, when I take my hands off of the results that should be upon us all the time and I allow those things to come in, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm hoping in those situations. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I promise that I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin first, which is most crucial. But then beyond that, I will bring healing to their land. The church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of this country. People like you and me being right with God as a church, being on mission with God. It's going to bring about by the grace of God as we pray and seek him, the reversal of the darkness that plagues this world. It's how it's always worked. It's how it always will. Oh, I hope you're in awe of this God, this God of ours. He deserves our worship our adoration. Will you stand with me as we sing and we close?